Welcome to the Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast. I am your guest host, Linda Cherry, author of the forthcoming book, The Redemption of the Bride, God's Redeeming Love for His Covenant People. This week, we are covering section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This section was received in the translation room located upstairs in the Newell K. Whitney store in Kirtland, Ohio, and was given over a three-day period beginning December 27th and 28th, 1832, with the last instructions being received on January 3rd, 1833. This three-day outpouring is reflected in the fact that Section 88 has 141 doctrinally rich verses. Let's begin with a little historical context to this revelation. You may have noticed that the first day of its reception was two days after Christmas. Christmas time in early America was not celebrated in the same way as many celebrate it now. For many early Americans, including the saints, the beginning of a new year was a sober time of reflection. And there was a lot to reflect upon for Joseph and the ten high priests who were with him in the upper room that day. Two days earlier, on Christmas Day, Joseph had received the revelation that war was about to be poured out upon all nations. In addition to the political stressors of the time, the saints in Missouri had directed some harsh criticism against the leaders who were then living in Ohio, and feelings were strained between the two groups who had sacrificed much and were trying to find some order and peace amongst themselves. How could they establish Zion as the Lord had directed them to do? For Joseph and Emma personally, they had grieved the passing of their fourth child, adopted son Joseph Murdoch in March of this same year, and Emma had given birth to another son, Joseph III, in November, just a month before this revelation was received. His life must have seemed particularly precious as they thought of the children they had lost and also reflected upon the birth of the Savior. Because so much of Doctrine and Covenants 88 relates to the resurrection and afterlife, and Joseph and Sidney Rigdon had received the glorious vision recorded as Doctrine and Covenants 76, in February of this same year, we might wonder if Joseph may have been pondering the truths of that vision as it related to their current circumstances. We will see that Section 88 seems to build upon and clarify the truths that had been received about the various kingdoms to which we are signed after death. For Joseph and Emma, as well as for each one of us, we may wonder about the circumstances in which we will be with our beloved family members again. What must we do to inherit eternal life? There were nine other men present with Joseph when the revelation known as Section 88 was received. Their names read as a who's who from early church history, and some of Joseph's own family were among them. His father, Joseph Sr., and his brothers, Hiram and Samuel. Sidney Rigdon was there, who had been injured earlier from the tarn feathering he had received from the mob. Others present were Orson Hyde, Newell K. Whitney, Frederick G. Williams, Ezra Thayer, and John Murdoch. Joseph encouraged those present to be united and to be of one heart and one mind, and he invited each person in the group to take a turn praying aloud to know the Lord's will and how to bring about Zion. The revelation that followed was dictated by Joseph until 9 p.m. that evening, at which time they stopped for the night. The next morning the group reassembled and prayed, and the remainder of the revelation was received. 
Later, on January 3rd, 1833, the prophet received additional revelation that was later added. Joseph later referred to the revelation of section 88 as an olive leaf from the tree of paradise, the Lord's message of peace to us. The revelation reveals how to receive spiritual hope and peace despite difficult circumstances, dissension, and strife. Included in this olive leaf revelation are reassurances to those present of the Lord's awareness of their faithfulness to Him, as well as promises to them regarding their own personal exaltation. An in-depth explication of the light of Christ and its role in the universe and in the hearts of individuals. The manner in which individuals receive of that light of Christ and qualify for resurrection and life in the various kingdoms of light, from the celestial kingdom of sunlight glory to outer darkness where no light exists at all. Signs that precede the second coming and the millennium. Instructions for the organization of the School of the Prophets, which would lead to the eventual forthcoming of the first temple of this dispensation in Kirtland, Ohio, where the Lord might endow those whom he had chosen with power from on high. Because of the wealth of doctrine and revelation contained in this section and our own limited time together, our focus today will be on the light of Christ, its role in the universe, and the manner in which individuals receive of that light and qualify for resurrection and life in the various kingdoms of light. In this section, the light of Christ and the law by which each kingdom is governed are related. There is an emphasis by the Lord on the terms willing and abide. We are appointed to each kingdom based upon the amount of light we are willing to receive, and also on the amount of light we can abide or endure. If we have not been willing to receive of the full glory that Christ offers us, we are not able to abide or endure being in his presence. In the first two verses, the Lord tells those who had assembled together how pleased he is with them and that their prayers have been heard. He commends them and tells them that angels rejoice over them and that their names are recorded in the book of the names of the sanctified, even them of the celestial world. The Lord is pleased when we earnestly seek to know his will. This might remind us of President Nelson's recent challenge to let God prevail in our lives. Joseph Smith and the brethren who were with him on this occasion were told that because of their earnest desires, and perhaps because the Lord knows that they will let him prevail as they are prepared to act upon his instructions to them, their names are recorded in the book of life, or those who are reserved for the celestial kingdom. How would you feel to have such an assurance that you are assured of a place in the celestial kingdom? The Lord repeats the promise in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Wherefore I now send upon you another comforter, even upon you my friends, that it may be abide in your hearts, even the Holy Spirit of promise, which other comforter is the same that I promised unto my disciples, as is recorded in the testimony of John. This comforter is the promise which I give unto you of eternal life, even the glory of the celestial kingdom. The Lord refers to those present as his friends. What do we do in order to qualify for that title? How do we become a friend to Jesus Christ? During his last supper with his apostles prior to his death and resurrection, Jesus explained, Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, 
but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my father, I have made known unto you. Joseph and those with him had come with a determination to do whatsoever the Lord would command, and thus the heavens were open to them. The comforter that the Savior promised to send them as a result is the Holy Spirit of promise, not to be mistaken as the second comforter, which is an actual visitation by the Lord himself, although later in this section the brethren present will be promised that that blessing can also be theirs in the due time of the Lord. President Joseph Fielding Smith clarified that, quote, the Holy Spirit of promise is not the second comforter. The Holy Spirit of promise is the Holy Ghost who places the stamp of approval upon every ordinance that is done righteously. And when covenants are broken, he removes the seal. While each of those who were present had previously received of the gift of the Holy Ghost, they were then being promised that they could receive an assurance of eternal life or an inheritance in the celestial kingdom through the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. End quote. I will point out here again that Doctrine and Covenants 88 expands upon Doctrine and Covenants 76, which Joseph referred to as the vision and which had been received earlier in the year. We know that the vision expanded our understanding of what transpires after death and resurrection and explained the fact that there are numerous kingdoms in the afterlife. This vision about the various kingdoms came as a surprise to many, for Christians had long thought of the afterlife as an assignment to either heaven or hell. Reading the two sections together, Doctrine and Covenants 76 and Doctrine and Covenants 88, can provide really valuable insights into how one can qualify for each of the kingdoms of glory. The next verses in section 88 help to prepare us for understanding the promise of glory in the celestial kingdom by explaining the light of Christ, which is in and through all things. If we will have an eye single to God and receive the light of Christ, it can fill us with light so that we are prepared to dwell with the Father and the Son in the brightest kingdom of glory. I have found it interesting in this context to ponder the fact that the first command that God gave in the creation account is, Let there be light. How does that command relate to the following verses, and how does it help us to understand Jesus Christ's role as the Creator? Verse 5 states of the celestial kingdom, Which glory is that of the church of the firstborn, even of God, the holiest of all, through Jesus Christ his Son? He that ascended up on high, as also he descended below all things, in that he comprehended all things, that he might be in all and through all things, the light of truth. Which truth shineth? This is the light of Christ. As also he is in the sun and the light of the sun and the power thereof by which it was made. As also he is in the moon and is the light of the moon and the power thereof by which it was made. As also the light of the stars and the power thereof by which they were made, and the earth also, and the power thereof, even the earth upon which you stand. And the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings. Which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space? The light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, 
which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God, who sitteth upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity, who is the midst of all things. Let there be light was the first command that was given for the creation. On another occasion during his mortal ministry, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. How could those who heard him that day have begun to understand what he meant by that? As we read Doctrine and Covenants 88 about how Jesus is the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the power by which they are made, can we really comprehend it? President Joseph Fielding Smith explained that the, quote, light of Christ is not a personage. It has no body. He said, I do not know what it is as far as substance is concerned, but it fills the immensity of space and emanates from God. It is the light by which the worlds are controlled, by which they are made. It is the light of the sun and all other bodies. It is the light which gives life to vegetation. It quickens the understanding of men and has these various functions as set forth in these verses. President Smith continues, This is our explanation in regard to the Spirit of Christ, or light of truth, which every man receives and is guided by. Unless a man had the blessings that come from this Spirit, his mind would not be quickened, there would be no vegetation grown, the worlds would not stay in their orbits, because it is through this Spirit of truth, this light of truth, according to this revelation, that all these things are done. End quote. These descriptions of Jesus Christ are truly awe-inspiring and help us to understand the characteristics that enabled him to ascend on high and achieve godhood while yet in the premortal existence. We might also gain a better understanding of what is meant by the condescension of God in laying that power aside in order to live a mortal life suffer the same trials and temptations that we do, and descend below all things in performing an atonement in our behalf. Jesus Christ is simply everything to us. In fact, verse 14 explains that resurrection is only possible because of the redemption which is made for you. Because Jesus Christ is who he is, and because he has performed an atonement for us, we have the promise of resurrection and the hope of eternal life in the celestial kingdom. Verses 15 and 16 tell us that the spirit and the body are the soul of man, and the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul. This is unique doctrine. Many in the Christian world define the soul as the spirit without the body. It is important for us to understand the eternal nature of our spirit and our body, and therefore the importance of the resurrection in which they will be united again after death. The power of the redemption and of the resurrection is through the same power that controls the universe and the infinite worlds, through Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the firstborn, is fulfilling the will of the Father in the plan of salvation. It is their purpose to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. The earth also has a role in that plan, The earth has a spirit and was baptized with the flood at Noah's time and will yet be burned with fire, symbolically as as if with the Holy Ghost, and it will be resurrected. When it is resurrected and quickened, it will become the celestial kingdom. Verse 17 tells tells us that it has been decreed that the poor and the meek of the earth shall inherit it. 
When Jesus taught the people at the Sermon on the Mount, he promised that the poor in spirit, or those who are humble, would receive the kingdom of God, and that the meek, or those who are kind and forgiving, would inherit the earth. The Doctrine and Covenants student manual explains that, quote, to inherit the earth means to inherit the celestial kingdom. At the fall of Adam and Eve, the earth was changed from having a paradisiacal or terrestrial glory and became a telestial world. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. Following that millennial period, the earth will again undergo a change and become new, this time as a celestial world. As recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 88, in order to become an inheritance for those of the celestial kingdom, the earth will be sanctified and crowned with glory. End quote. Again, this is unique doctrine. Many Christians picture what they think of as heaven as somewhere up in the sky amongst the clouds. It's hard for them to imagine what resurrected beings might be doing in that heaven, and many are not certain about whether there will be family units. What a wonderful thing it is for us to have the restored gospel in its fullness and to have these marvelous truths revealed to us, to know that we can be redeemed, resurrected, and sealed together as families, and that the earth itself will also be glorified and become our eternal home. Let's read verses 18 through 26. Verse 18, speaking of the earth, Therefore it must needs be sanctified from all unrighteousness, that it may be prepared for the celestial glory. For after it hath filled the measure of its creation, it shall be crowned with glory, even with the presence of the Father. That bodies who are of the celestial kingdom may possess it forever and ever. For for this intent was it made and created, and for this intent are they sanctified. Here we will include verses 25 and 26 with these verses about the destiny of the earth. And again, verily I say unto you, The earth abideth the law of a celestial kingdom, for it filleth the measure of its creation, and transgresseth not the law. Wherefore it shall be sanctified. Yea, notwithstanding, it shall die, it shall be quickened again, and shall abide the power by which it is quickened, and the righteous shall inherit it. Notice, if you will, that the Lord commends the earth for filling the measure of its creation and not transgressing the law. These are interesting statements to make and help us to recognize that the earth is a living creation and has a very close relationship to the people who live on it as well as to its creator. Abraham 4 tells us that the earth and all of the creations of God obeyed him. But of mankind, the Lord says, we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Perhaps we, as the children of God, have yet to follow the example of the earth, to fill the measure of our creation and not transgress the law. Imagine, if you will, that you are in that upper room with Joseph and his friends. They have received a great deal of light and truth in the two years following the formation of the church. The heavens have been opened to them, and they have had their understanding enlightened. Earlier in this same year, they received the glorious vision of their various degrees of glory, and they have surely been pondering and praying about that vision, and hoping 
that they and their loved ones might be worthy to inherit the celestial kingdom, which was described in wondrous detail. They have sacrificed much, and for some they have sacrificed everything, that they might gain the approval of the Lord. They have asked that they might understand more, and they have just received the revelation about the light of Christ and how it governs all things in the universe. They understand that the more light that they are willing to receive, the more they are prepared to inherit the kingdom which is compared to the sun, as its glory, or its light, is so brilliant that only those with an eye single to the glory of God can dwell there. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that Christ himself is the source of light in the celestial city. For the city has no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God does lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. But what of those who are not willing to receive the greater light? Verses 21-24 through 24 teaches that there is a law that governs each kingdom. Note the correlation between law and light, in that we learn that if one will not abide by the law of a kingdom, they cannot abide the glory or the light of that kingdom. Verse 21 And they who are not sanctified through the law which I have given unto you, even the law of Christ, must inherit another kingdom, even that of a terrestrial kingdom, or that of a telestial kingdom. For he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a terrestrial kingdom cannot abide a terrestrial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a telestial kingdom cannot abide a telestial glory. Therefore he is not meet for a kingdom of glory. Therefore he must abide a kingdom which is not a kingdom of glory. Elder James E. Talmadge explained that, quote, If a man cannot or will not obey celestial laws, that is, live in accordance with the celestial requirements, he must not think that he is discriminated against when he is excluded from the celestial kingdom, because he could not abide it, he could not live there. If a man cannot or will not obey the terrestrial law, he cannot rationally hope for a place in the terrestrial kingdom. If he cannot live the yet lower law, the telestial law, he cannot abide the glory of a telestial kingdom, and he will have to be assigned, therefore, to a kingdom without glory. End quote. I have known many people who wonder and worry about which kingdom they will inherit after death. I believe the answer to their questions comes about in a far more natural way than they realize. Verses 67 and 68 of Doctrine and Covenants 88 tells us, And if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you. And it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. Doctrine and Covenants 50.24 adds, That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light, and continueth in God, receiveth more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. 
In other words, the more our hearts and minds are single to God, the more light we receive from Him, and the more our bodies and spirits are filled with light, and the more we are prepared for a kingdom of glory. It was no idle statement when Jesus told His disciples that they were to become a light to the world. And to the Nephites, He clarified that the light which they were to shine forth was His light. Section 88 here helps us to understand the role of the light of Christ and how we can receive it, so that we can also radiate it and share it with others. To Nicodemus in the New Testament, Jesus said that the condemnation of man is that they love darkness more than they love light. Are we seeking the light of Christ daily? Section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants compares the celestial kingdom to the sun, the terrestrial kingdom to the moon, and the telestial kingdom to the stars in terms of light and glory. Joseph Smith said of the celestial kingdom, quote, I saw the transcendent beauty of the gate through which the heirs of that kingdom will enter, which was like unto circling flames of fire, also the blazing throne of God, whereon was seated the Father and the Son. End quote. Some people seem to view the assignment to the kingdoms as God pointing a finger at them and telling them that they aren't worthy and that they have to leave his presence. But I believe it is a far more generous and loving experience than that, and that it will occur in such a natural way that we ourselves will call it just and merciful. Our judgment and assignment to the kingdoms of various levels of light will be based on the light we have chosen to embrace each day in our mortality. We qualify ourselves for each of the kingdoms by the amount of light we can bear. Can we bear to be in the presence of the glorious light that emanates from the Father and the Son? Are we making daily choices that bring us more into the light so that we will feel at home in their presence? This is not to say that we qualify ourselves, but as Moroni taught, we come unto Christ and are perfected in Him and deny ourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all our might, mind, and strength. And then is His grace sufficient, that by His grace we may become perfect in His sight. When His light is within us, John the Apostle promised, When He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, we will feel at home in His presence. And as Alma said, we shall have received His image in our countenance, because we have become one with Him. Verses 28-32 through 32 of section 88 affirm the principles we have just discussed. Verse 28 They who are of a celestial spirit shall receive the same body which was a natural body. Even ye shall receive your bodies, and your glory shall be that glory by which your bodies are quickened. They who are quickened by a portion of the celestial glory shall then receive the same, even a fullness. And they who are quickened by a portion of the terrestrial glory shall then receive of the same, even a fullness. And also they who are quickened by a portion of the telestial glory shall then receive of the same, even a fullness. The fact that our resurrection to a kingdom of glory is based upon our daily effort and choice to receive and magnify the light of Christ is further explained by Bruce R. McConkie, who defined the relationship between a celestial body and a celestial spirit. He said, 
Quote, Those who by full obedience to gospel requirements develop celestial bodies gain at the same time celestial spirits. Then in the resurrection, when the same body which was a natural body, that is the renewed body, the body sanctified by the spirit, the celestial body, is received back again, they who are of a celestial spirit are quickened by a celestial glory and go on to an inheritance in a celestial kingdom. End quote. Elder L. Tom Perry indicated that such a condition would be observable in this life. Quote, Surely there would be an obvious difference between one who is attempting to conduct his life as though he were a citizen of the kingdom of God and one who is conducting his life by the standards made by man. When a person determines to live a higher law, there should be a visible difference, a marked change in his appearance, his actions, the way he treats others, and the way he serves his fellow men and his God. The scriptures are full of dramatic changes which occurred in the lives of individuals when they were converted to living the law of the Lord. End quote. I am sure that you have known people from whom the light of Christ shines like a beacon. They are filled with love for others, and many find comfort and peace in their presence. Verses 32 through 33 tell us what will become of those who have not received the light of Christ or an associated kingdom of glory. Verse 32, And they who remain shall also be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. Note the emphasis on that which one is willing to receive. The Lord is so good to all of his children, and pours his gracious gifts out upon us all and he will not force himself upon us. We may each choose to receive the gift and the giver or not. Isn't it wonderful to have the Lord explain so much to us about how the resurrection works and about how to set our goals for eternity? There really is no need for worry or uncertainty. In verses 34 through 39, the Lord explains the purpose of law and the various laws of the many kingdoms. Remember that he has linked the law and the light of Christ together in this section. Thinking about the light of Christ may help you to better come to understand and even love the word law. We receive more light as we love and honor the laws of God that govern his kingdom. This is a process that can lead to our sanctification, cleansing us and preparing our minds, hearts and souls to be in the presence of God. Verses 34 through 39 read, And again, verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law is also preserved by law, and perfected and sanctified by the same. That which breaketh a law, and abideth not by law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself, and willeth to abide in sin, and altogether abideth in sin, cannot be sanctified by law, neither by mercy, justice, nor judgment. Therefore, they must remain filthy still. All kingdoms have a law given, and there are many kingdoms, for there is no space in the which there is no kingdom, and there is no kingdom in which there is no space. 
either a greater or a lesser kingdom. And unto every kingdom is given a law, and unto every law there are certain bounds also and conditions. All beings who abide not in those conditions are not justified. Brother Ridges refers to the word justify as we use it in word processing software, when we line up both margins in a perfectly straight vertical line. He says, quote, In gospel terminology, justify can mean to be lined up in perfect harmony with God. The Holy Ghost assists us in this endeavor, prompting us to do the things necessary to access the atonement's cleansing and healing power so that we are ultimately justified or living in harmony with the laws of God and can thus enter into his presence for eternity. End quote. The Lord is explaining how things work in a clear and logical way. What are our hearts set upon? What are we seeking for? Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf told the story of two pilots who inadvertently set their destination a few degrees off of its actual location. Tragically, they flew their airplane into a mountain, killing all on board. Elder Uchtdorf warned that we must be clear about our intention and our ultimate destination. He said, quote, The Lord requires not only outward acts, but also your inner thoughts and feelings to be close to the spirit of the law. God requires the heart and a willing mind. These commandments and covenants of God are like navigational instructions from celestial heights and will lead us safely to our eternal destination. It is one of beauty and glory beyond understanding. It is worth the effort. It is worth making decisive corrections now and then and staying on course. End quote. For intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence. Wisdom receiveth wisdom. Truth embraceth truth. Virtue loveth virtue. Light cleaveth unto light. Mercy hath compassion on mercy, and claimeth her own. Justice continueth its course, and claimeth its own. Judgment goeth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne, and governeth and executeth all things. Brother Ridges reminds us that the qualities just listed are qualities that thrive in celestial glory, and typify the attributes of God. For me, the next verses describing God, the universe, and the elements of his creation are nothing short of poetic and awe-inspiring. Verse 41, He comprehendeth all things, and all things are before him, and all things are round about him, and he is above all things, and in all things, and is through all things, and is round about all things, and all things are by him and of him, even God, for ever and ever. And again, verily I say unto you, he hath given a law unto all things, by which they move in their times and their seasons, and their courses are fixed, even the courses of the heavens and the earth, which comprehend the earth and all the planets. And they give light to each other in their times and in their seasons, in their minutes, in their hours, in their days, in their weeks, in their months, in their years, all these are one year with God, but not with man. The earth rolls upon her wings, and the sun giveth his light by day, and the moon giveth her light by night, and the stars also give their light, as they roll upon their wings, in their glory, in the midst of the power of God. It is as if the Lord has shown his, his telescope, and then his microscope, 
He controls all the planets and the stars of the universe. The earth rolls upon her wings by his command. Yet he is also aware when a bird falls to the ground. He knows the most intimate matters of our lives. He comprehends all things and cares deeply, so deeply that he has given his life that we might find joy and peace. And he wants us to really know him and understand his plan, perhaps by showing us the big picture and then the small details of the plan, we can better understand it. He asks in verse 46, Unto what shall I liken these kingdoms, that ye may understand? Behold, all these are kingdoms, and any man who hath seen any or the least of these hath seen God moving in his majesty and power. I say unto you, he hath seen him. Nevertheless, he who came unto his own was not comprehended. What does it mean to comprehend Christ? This is certainly more than just acknowledging his role. In the high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, Jesus said, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. As he did with Abraham and with Moses, the Lord is showing us his manifold creations, worlds without number, over which he has all power. After Moses saw this vision, he fell to the ground and said, Now I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. But following that experience, the Lord called out to Moses, identifying him as his son, and told him he had a work to do. The Lord showed Moses worlds without number, and then showed Moses his own place in that grand universe. The Lord knew him, loved him, and trusted him. So it is with us, as we read Doctrine and Covenants 88, we might be tempted to remove ourselves from the grand panoply. We can say it is too much for us to comprehend. We can even recoil in fear or a sense of our own nothingness. Or we can learn from Abraham and Moses and from Joseph Smith, and while recognizing our own smallness, accept the call and the commission that he's uniquely tailored for us. To comprehend Christ is not only to know Him, but to see and know ourselves through Him. Verse 49, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Nevertheless, the day shall come when you shall comprehend even God, being quickened in Him and by Him. Then shall ye know that ye have seen me, that I am, and that I am the true light that is in you and that you are in me, otherwise ye could not abound. Later in this section, in verses 67 through 68, the Lord promises, Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. There are many ways in which we can know or see. To see may not necessarily mean with our mortal eyes during our mortal journey, but we can come to know and see Jesus Christ in our lives in a very real way as we keep these laws of light as they are explained in section 88. Brother Ridges explains that the Master now gives a parable in answer to the question he asked earlier in verse 46, which was, Unto what shall I liken these kingdoms, that ye may understand? In this parable he teaches that he will visit each of the many worlds he has created, 
and the worthy inhabitants of each will have the privilege of seeing him. This does not mean that he will be born, live, be crucified, and then be resurrected on each of these other worlds. Rather, it means that he will visit them from time to time. This parable ties in nicely with D&C 7624, which informs us that the inhabitants of all the Father's worlds are saved by the atonement performed by the Savior on our world. Brother Ridges adds that this parable has 12 worlds, but they are symbolic of all the worlds Christ has and will create. It is interesting to note that in biblical symbolism, the number 12 represents God's perfect work. After giving the parable of the kingdoms, the Lord encourages us us all to seek for understanding about the doctrines he has just taught, beginning with verse 62. And again, verily I say unto you, my friends, I leave these sayings with you to ponder in your hearts, with this commandment which I give unto you, that ye shall call upon me while I am near. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, it shall be given unto you that is expedient for you. And again to repeat verses 67 through 68. And if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you, and that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. The Lord has now made the promise of seeing him multiple times in this revelation. In fact, Joseph and Sidney Rigdon had just seen the Savior previously that year when they received the vision recorded in section 76. And the Lord will again manifest himself to Joseph and Oliver Cowdery at the Kirtland Temple dedication. But these promises are manifest to more than just the men present in the room receiving the revelation. This promise is to all who seek him with their whole hearts and sanctify and consecrate their lives unto him. As the revelation continues, the Lord now turns to specific instructions for the teaching of the gospel and especially for the preparations for receiving further light and revelation. The members of the church are urged to purify their hearts, continue in prayer and fasting, learn the doctrine of the Lord's kingdom, to study widely, and to be good missionaries in spreading the gospel message. Numerous verses refer to the signs of the times that will be fulfilled shortly before the second coming. There will be signs in the heavens, earthquakes, tempests, and storms. All things shall be in commotion, and men's hearts shall fail them, for fear shall come upon all people. Angels will sound their trumps, and there shall be silence in heaven for half an hour. And then the curtain of heaven will be unfolded as a scroll, and the face of the Lord shall be unveiled. As John the Beloved testified, every eye shall see him, and the faithful saints who are alive on earth at the time of the Savior's coming will be transfigured and taken up to meet him. The righteous who died after the resurrection of Christ, who lived worthy of celestial glory, will be resurrected and taken up to meet the coming Lord. Six angels sound their trumps, signaling the various events preparatory to the millennium, including the resurrection of those who have qualified for the celestial 
and terrestrial kingdoms. Finally, Michael, who is Adam, sounds the seventh trump and announces, It is finished, and there shall be time no longer. Satan will be bound and shall not be loosed for the space of a thousand years, when he will gather all those who will yet follow him for a last great battle against the forces of God, led by Michael, our father Adam, who also led the forces in the premortal realm. How do we best prepare ourselves for these events? The Savior instructed in verses 119 and 120, Organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. That your incomings may be in the name of the Lord, that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord, and that all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord, with uplifted hands unto the Most High. Although these specific instructions to organize, prepare, and to establish a house of prayer apply specifically first to the establishment of the School of the Prophets and later to the Temple, they also apply to our own individual lives and homes. As we prepare a sanctuary where the Lord can instruct us, we can learn directly from Him as we hear Him and let Him prevail in our lives. Following these instructions, the first session of the School of the Prophets opened a few weeks later, on January 22, 1833, in the same upper room of the Whitney store. Both men and women attended that first session, and there was a great spiritual outpouring. The school offered both spiritual and secular instruction, per the Lord's commandment. The foundational lessons learned and applied at the School of the Prophets helped to prepare the members of the church for the eventual endowment and for the building of the Kirtland Temple in 1836. As stated at the beginning, Joseph referred to the revelation of section 88 as an olive leaf from the tree of paradise, the Lord's message of peace to us. How can studying the section bring hope and peace into our lives despite difficult circumstances, dissension, and strife? The Lord's instruction to have an eye single to him, seeking his will and his light, as we also seek to share that light with others, will help to keep us from being distracted by the turmoil around us. That light can continue brighter and brighter until the perfect day when we can return to his presence and experience pure joy and peace with our loved ones in the celestial kingdom. The prophet Joseph Smith explained that receiving spiritual light prepares us to return to God. He said, quote, We consider that God has created man with a mind capable of instruction and a faculty which may be enlarged in proportion to the heed and diligence given to the light communicated from heaven to the intellect, and that the nearer man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views and the greater his enjoyments, till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire for sin, and like the ancients arrives at that point of faith where he is wrapped in the power and glory of his maker and caught up to dwell with him. But we consider that this is a situation to which no man ever arrived in a moment. End quote. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, then of the First Presidency, taught that the process of obtaining spiritual light begins when we come to God. Quote, As we draw near to Heavenly Father, we become more holy. And as we become more holy, we will overcome disbelief, and our souls will be filled with His blessed light. As we align our lives with His supernal light, it leads us out of darkness and toward greater light. This greater light leads to the unspeakable ministerings of the Holy Spirit and the veil between heaven and earth can become thin.
End quote. This is the end of our time together. We could easily enjoy two weeks in discussing the beautiful truths contained in Doctrine and Covenants 88. I encourage you to study and ponder this beautiful olive leaf section. Brother Ridges has provided a very helpful study guide that will enrich your study. May each of us seek to follow and embrace the light of Christ in our daily lives, that we may receive the promised blessings of the heirs of salvation, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.